Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. The U.S. and Canada launched a trade dispute with Mexico over the country's energy policies, which restrict market access and favor two state-owned enterprises, the CFE, which is a state-run utility, and Pemex, the oil company. To discuss why these policies have not only undermined private companies that have poured billions into the sector, but how they have also damaged North America's ability to produce competitive, abundant, and clean electricity, that it is my pleasure to welcome Secretary Ildefonso Guajardo, the former lead negotiator for Mexico of the new USMCA Free Trade Agreement and a current member of Mexico's lower house of Congress for the PRI party. Secretary Guajardo, welcome to the podcast. Secretary, you were the lead negotiator for Mexico of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Free Trade Agreement. July marked its two-years anniversary, and that same month, the U.S. Trade Representative, as well as Canada, requested consultations to address Mexico's changes in energy policies. The letter sent by Ambassador Catherine Tai mentioned four specific topics. Is it your view that Mexico's policies are in fact in breach of USMCA? Well, let me tell you, Mariana, that uh, definitely it was uh, unexpected uh, move by the US. I mean, there were too many visits by Kerry, too many uh, signals that things were not going well in the energy sector. And therefore, this letter that was, in my view, delay, because it was due a little bit earlier, it was fortunate that it happened. You know that it's not the only complaint there is in uh, USMCA. You have the auto complaint where Mexico and Canada are demanding the U.S. You have the dairy complaint that where the U.S. is demanding Canada. And third of all, I think that to keep USMCA strong and to keep its integrity, we have to be very careful on how we guarantee compliance with the agreement. And the U.S. Uh, request for consultation is based definitely in a very sound ground because uh, the fact that uh, there was a law, a secondary law, that basically changed the way you deal in the energy sector, basically electricity, is definitely a breach of our commitments under the USMCA agreement. Because uh, we are definitely violating the charter that has to do with public enterprises and how they have to behave in a free market. We are violating the investment charter. We are violating uh, a cross-border trade or services. So there are a lot of transversal commitments that are in different charters that had been uh, definitely not respected with this new law in electricity. As you mentioned, these consultations have occurred before under USMCA. We had dairy with Canada and in the automotive sector against the US. 
if no agreement is reached during these consultations, a predetermined panel will be created and Mexico could face retaliatory tariffs. Secretary, do you think Mexico will be able to avoid the creation of a panel? By what I'm hearing from different government officials, it seems like the administration of the agreement falls in the responsibility of the Minister of the Economy. But unfortunately, you keep hearing public statements by the Ministry of Energy. And according to her statements, her understanding is that Mexico is not violating anything because she uses a couple of paragraphs that are included in Charter 8. That was a last moment change where the only thing you do is reaffirm something that was already in the Constitution of Mexico. Oil belongs to the Mexicans, which is a fact that doesn't tell you how to exploit that oil in favor of the Mexicans. And the other paragraph is that Mexico is a sovereign country that can change their laws and constitution when, whenever the Mexicans want or the government uh, intends to. But that does not release you from the responsibility to keep your commitments that you have made under the agreement. So you have to pay for whatever damage you do to prior a contracted commitments. So that is not enough to say that you are not violating the agreement. And therefore, I believe that if you follow the, the normal course of action, you will definitely end up in an arbitrage in a panel to really solve the differences. Unfortunately, let me give you a point which I'm very uncomfortable about. What the Trump administration left as a legacy in the U.S.-Mexico relationship was very unfortunate because at some point in time during the López Obrador administration, Trump threatened to basically sanction Mexico with not white tariffs in an increased proportion of 5% to 10 to 20 to 25. Yeah, I remember that. If Mexico that. Don't, mm -hmm. uh, didn't do anything specifically to prevent the immigration flows coming from Central America. That was the very first time the bilateral agenda has been contaminated by cross, crossing different boxes of negotiation. You never discuss migration with trade and you never discuss security with trade or migration. You definitely have this compartmentalized negotiation process, which was very healthy for a very complex bilateral relationship. That inheritance left by Trump is unfortunately alive today in a way in which I hope the Biden administration will not try to get things done in migration vis-a-vis -vis delaying the integration of the panel. That will be very unfortunate to really follow Trump's uh, method of bullying neighborhood countries with different threats that contaminate trade, economic, and investment. Secretary, let me ask you one question regarding this contamination. The November midterm elections are just around the corner, and immigration is certainly the number one issue in the United States, and Biden is being blamed today for the crisis at the border. Do you think AMLO is using this migration card to his advantage, and in doing so, try to gain some concessions from the United States, so basically that he's inverting what Trump had did in the past? It is basically a trend or a, an action that you, you cannot discard. If you look at how the Lopez Obrador administration was trying to deal with the issue of complaints at the beginning, 
They were doing these meetings in the National Palace led by Salazar, the, the American ambassador in Mexico, with a bunch of businessmen, 30, 40 U.S. businessmen that had already been invested in Mexico, trying to avoid uh, investor state disputes and trying to accommodate them with some solutions that were not to really respect the terms of the agreement, but telling them, listen, you're already invested and I'll find ways to benefit you, but do not push me to really comply with the terms of the agreement. Just like what happened with the Canadian issue on the pipeline, where they have a big problem with TransCanada, and at the end, the solution was to, to extend the concession. At the end, it cost more to the Mexicans, and it was an inefficient solution for the Mexican economy. So fortunately, the U.S. changed the strategy and went to, for an state-to-state -state dispute that is stronger and do, does not create uh, the wrong incentives to arrive to solutions that may diminish the losses for investors, but may not be efficient for the Mexican economy. So in that regard, the López Obrador administration will go any way or any route that they will find possible to pressure the Biden administration and get away with what they want in the energy sector. I hope in this case, the U.S. administration goes back to the compartmentalization policy that is more healthy for the bilateral relationship. As you know, Secretary of State Blinken and the Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, were just in Mexico. Something happened which made AMLO pull back from a very nationalistic speech he had been planning to deliver during Mexico's Independence Day celebrations. As you know, Secretary, AMLO sees state control of the energy sector as a matter of national sovereignty. But one thing is to backtrack in his language, and another very different thing is to reverse some of the policies that brought us here in the first place. Of the four issues highlighted by Secretary Tai, what do you believe are the most sensitive issues for AMLO? I cannot rank them in, in a way because I think all of them are relevant for AMLO's policies on, on energy. Leaving the Mexican electrical company as the main supplier and the first supplier of energy, regardless of competitive uh, responsibilities and clean energy, that is uh, a backbone of uh, its electrical policy. The other one, in terms of giving uh, Pemex priority in the sale of uh, gas in Mexico for industry, all of those elements are definitely uh, very relevant to maintain the integrity of what they want in terms of a, of a government state monopoly of, of uh, electricity and oil. I really think that all of those issues go back to the, to the basics. Now, like for instance, there were a pile of uh, authorizations for the distribution of gas or opening of private gas stations that were basically backlog uh, in terms of uh, all the regulations. And all of a the sudden, they approved 300 of them that they have not approved in three years. So they may ease some of the bureaucratic backloads in authorizations, like storage of gas or storage of gasolines that have been blocked with a lot of uh, very superfluous uh, reasons. 
and therefore I see a couple of actions that may easy things, but will not definitely change the nature of the energy policy that they want to establish in Mexico. So assuming there is no change in these policies and we go to a panel, what do you anticipate as the outcome of this panel? If they don't change the electrical law, we lose the panel with high probability. As you know, the arbiters or the guys that will make the ruling will have to estimate the damage. What is the amount of the damage being done? And therefore, the countries that are demanding will have the right to impose tariffs on Mexican exports up to that amount. And therefore, Mexico will have 45 days to comply with the, the request to change the regulatory framework. And if we don't, we'll be hit with tariffs. Now, at the same time, I, I have to tell you that the demanding country has the possibility to delay these chronological specific uh, targets because they can push or, or really extend the decision to request the panel. And then once they are in the panel, they can prolong the, the resolution. And once the resolution is given, they can uh, delay uh, the establishment of tariffs. And therefore, the possibility that other items of the bilateral negotiation come into play will be relevant to really have a very specific expectation on when things will happen. If things happen according to the chronology is involved in the agreement, within a year, we'll have uh, the tariff effects. But the U.S. has the possibility of delaying this as long as they want. There is a very technical calendar for sure, but there is also a political calendar. Do you expect some of the decisions to assign tariffs to certain goods to follow a political calendar as well? For example, imposing tariffs on Mexican sugar to benefit Florida? Yeah, but as you just mentioned, uh, when we were discussing uh, alternative actions and things that are not related to trade, you have different issues that will affect politics in the U.S. You have the issue of migration and you have the issue of trade and also alliances that can be can be built in some states. Definitely, the U.S. will have a, a preference to impose tariffs on things that will impose a lot of pain in Mexico and basically has to do with fresh products and sugar. And those will affect the areas that uh, the president of Mexico most wants to protect, which is the south the southeast, southwest of Mexico. So I will not be surprised that these tariffs will fall on, on fresh products, tomatoes, uh, berries, sugar. And that, in the case of sugar, is not the amount of sugar that we export that is relevant. It's what effect it will have on prices. If we don't export the about 2 million tons that we export to the U.S., That will reflect in lowering prices of sugar in Mexico. And at the same time, it will affect small farmers that grew sugar cane and will affect employees, employers, ingenios, where they produce sugar. So the effect will be on all social groups in Veracruz, Chiapas, and therefore that will infringe a lot of damage in that, in that sector. So on the U.S. side, you will benefit obviously important groups of growers, tomato growers in Florida. But you have also to think about cross-bordering uh, different items of negotiation, like the one you mentioned, like migration. So if that happened, I don't know what will be the speed 
of resolutions going through very close to a U.S. presidential election and how that will play. AMLO's policies have certainly not helped Mexico take advantage of the nearshoring opportunities, nor to attract these investments, nor to grow in tandem with the United States. But if his energy policies end up hurting the people that work in the agricultural sector, wouldn't that encourage them to seek opportunities in the U.S. as well? I think today, I don't see how migration has been stopped coming from Central America, and it's becoming Mexico's problem. Unfortunately, we don't have the public policy and the resources to really offer services to migrants that are coming from Central America. And the demographics of our cities are moving very fast. You see today a lot of people asking for help that they are coming from Haiti, they are coming from Central America, and they are putting a lot of pressure in northern cities of Mexico. And you have a terrible problem of the organized crime facilitating and, and doing inhumane things to traffic, uh, human traffic. And therefore, I don't think that Mexico can keep on going without really managing properly the southern border because of, of our own national interest. And at the same time, I do believe that if, if we go to this threat of tariffs on key uh, agriculture and, and fresh products to, for export to the U.S., I think that that will make us think twice before continuing the wrong policies, not because of the U.S. investors, because of the future of Mexico. Uh, one of the things that annoys me a lot is that we use the world being sovereignty or to protect uh, Mexico's sovereignty in energy, when at the end of the day, what they are protecting is public monopolies that are really bad for the for future opportunities for Mexicans. Uh, they are threatening the creation of industry. They are threatening the transformation of one of the biggest industries of Mexico, the agro industry, and that will definitely hammer or it will definitely it will definitely damage the possibility of job creation for Mexicans. Absolutely, Secretary. As you mentioned, these policies have not only affected billions of dollars in investments of U.S. and other companies, but they have also affected the potential of the whole North American manufacturing base. In fact, manufacturing in Mexico is growing at a faster pace today than our ability to generate electricity. And without cheap, abundant, and clean electricity, no matter what Mexico offers, we will not be able to compete. What was the rationale of Blinken and Raimondo to invite Mexico to be part of this CHIPS Act, as well as to cooperate with the U.S. in the renewable energies? You know, was it just a carrot with no stick? Was it naive? Was it real? How did you see it? Let me tell you that uh, when I was uh, reading about these uh, strategic alliances between the U.S. and South Korea, the U.S. and Taiwan, and I, I was thinking what a missed of opportunity for Mexico of not being at that level of doing this strategic alliance for semiconductors, microchips in the world, when we should be at the center of that policy. And it is incredible 
probably you know the data, international trade for Mexico has recovered even more than the last pre-COVID years. And our foreign investment has recovered from pre-COVID figures. And that is amazing because, for instance, the sale of industrial land in the northern and, and central Mexico has surpassed the 2018 level twice. So we have been extremely successful in selling industrial land for relocation of plants coming from Asia. Imagine how that will be if we had a much better future for energy, as you just mentioned. So we are missing a tremendous opportunity uh, to really attract not only the investment that is coming to knock our doors, but the investment that is strategic for future value change in, in, in manufacturing. The bottleneck today is the lack of sufficient electricity and even not only sufficient, but clean energy that is required for the future of manufacturing and international trade. I was talking to a group of uh, industrial park developers that had a meeting in the Mexican elect electrical company, and they said, we need electricity. And do you know what the response was? We have enough, not in the north, but the way we have in Tabasco, we have in Campeche. Go to Tabasco, go to Campeche, like ignoring that when you make an investment decision, you need electricity, but you need manpower that has been trained, <laughs> you need security, you need infrastructure, you need connectivity for exports. And so you want to force the industrialization of the whole country by just uh, supplying electricity where you want to supply electricity. Nonetheless, you don't have the conditions to really support the manufacturing. Very hard to, to understand. I agree. Secretary, you mentioned Ambassador Salazar. And he has been criticized both in the United States and in Mexico for trying maybe too hard to be a friend of AMLO rather than defending U.S. interests. What is your view? Well, I, I will not say that the, he is a fan of, uh, of the president of Mexico. I think that he, he probably overestimated his capacities by using politics and, and lobbying to really try to make a difference in the way uh, the Mexican government is, is dealing with some issues. And, and that's why he made this effort to bring this uh, businessman to solve one by one their problems with the Mexican government. I think he miscalculated his capacities to change things as they are. And I think that he discovered that more than one time going out of the National Palace, he had to, to, to really make a statements to correct the way things were coming out in terms of communication from the National Palace. So I think that he, he was definitely miscalculating his capacities to influence. And at the end of the day, he, he is empty-handed with no concrete or specific results. And therefore, I believe that that's why Washington had to change definitely their position and the strength of their comments. And at the end of the day, Ambassador Tide was allowed to deliver this letter for consultations. Let me change subjects for a second, since uh, security is a very important issue as well for both Mexico and the United States. 
You are a diputado from the PRI, and you recently voted in favor of AMLO to give the military control over Mexico's National Guard through 2028. Under U.S. laws, it is forbidden for the U.S. Armed Forces to participate in domestic law enforcement. Can you explain why you voted this way, and what do you think needs to happen now that it hasn't happened in the past 70 years for the military in Mexico to go back to its initial role of only defending the nation? Well, first, let's, let's be very clear. The role of the military of Mexico in trying to contain organized crime and violence didn't start with this administration. I mean, it was very strong with Calderón and continue with the government at which I serve, uh, President Peña. And, uh, and definitely to what, what was done in 2019 in a very, very deep negotiation between the opposition and government in the Senate was to give the government five years from 2019 to 2024 the possibility to create a national guard, a civilian national guard where, where the military was going to help in the creation of this national guard. Unfortunately, the speed in which they moved to create the National Guard was very slow. The results had been disastrous in terms of violence in Mexico and lost of, uh, of activities and territory in favor of organized crime. And if we kept the resolution of what was done in 2018, the, the, the Mexican armed forces had to go back to, to their installations or to their cuarteles, what we say in, in Spanish, uh, by March of 24. Today, the National Civilian Guard needs to have 150,000 members, and they have recruited only 20,000, and they have been held by 80,000 soldiers of armed forces. If we do not nothing within the next year and a half, the military has to go to, to their installations and Mexico will not have a strong forces to protect from violence. And it will be an electoral year where the possibility of getting an agreement will be very difficult. What we voted, it was not the militarization of the civilian guard. What we voted was an extension to allow the forces to keep building a civilian military forces for Mexico. Just to give you an example, I'm from Nuevo Leon. In 2009, we have a disastrous security issue in Monterrey. It was very violent. Uh, crime was on the streets. And it took us four years to build civilian forces, which is called Fuerza Civil in Nuevo León, which was at the very high level and quality of forces and was very effective. Unfortunately, in the following six years, the next governor let them basically deteriorate. But it takes time to build a civilian force. And the only institution with capacity to build it, with all the defects, with all the lack of training for, for, for many issues that have to be trained civilian forces to deal with regular crime in the cities. Unfortunately, we will not be ready 
to commit to keeping out the military in 2024. So we give them an extension of four more years to build the civilian national uh, forces. Obviously, a lot of people that are anti-AMLO or anti-government, they even didn't really know what was voted. But what they don't like is that we vote in the same way in which the official party voted. And therefore they are saying, ah, you are not very loyal to the alliance against the government. Well, let me tell you, we definitely are opposition. We are going to oppose the government in any attempt to weaken electoral institutions. We oppose the government. I was, I was one of the strongest one opposing the, the electrical reform to the constitution, but finally didn't pass. And so you cannot put the, the well, we say etiquetar or, 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 or tell that somebody has changed his political position by one vote. That one vote has to do with protecting the Mexican people from crime and violence. And that is certainly very important if we are going to attract investment. As you said, the military has been policing the streets for years now, and apparently it hasn't worked. So I asked myself, why would this time be any different? Aren't we creating a bigger problem? Unfortunately, Secretary Guajardo, we have come to the close of this episode, and I hope you come again to discuss with us these issues and many other issues affecting Mexico and the bilateral relationship. My name is Mariana Campero. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for the invitation, and I hope that we'll keep on reviewing the agenda that follows from here to the U.S. and Mexican election in 2024. Exactly. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. If you enjoy this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog of 